Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of love. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David! They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them, and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. What you've just heard is a dramatization of Matthew 21, verse 1 through 17. It's also in your bulletins as an insert if you don't have a Bible with you. The story is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where ultimately he's going to give his life. It's the season of Passover. The correlation of his death with the offering of the Passover lamb is amazing. That's for another Sunday. As they drew near Jerusalem, he sends two disciples to go into the village that they were by, and there they would find a donkey and a colt with the donkey, the donkey's child. said, loose them and bring them to me, and if someone asks you, tell them the master has need of them. So they did that, and they come to him with this donkey and the donkey's colt. He then rides the colt, an unbroken colt. I don't know how hard it is to break a colt, and I don't know, maybe having the mother there beside the colt helps Helps it to happen, but he rides an unbroken colt into Jerusalem, demonstrating his authority and his humility. His authority in riding a beast in a public place that has never been ridden before, and his humility in being a king riding a donkey instead of a horse. Now, we have the assurance in the scriptures one day he's coming back. I don't know how it's going to happen. No longer on a donkey, but on a big white horse. 
And all this was done that it could be fulfilled by what a prophet had prophesied. Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king comes to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. We'll look at that in a few minutes. It's a beautiful prophecy in a little more depth as to Christ and his reign. So he rides this donkey and the crowd begins to gather and give him praise. By this time he's beginning to be noticed and recognized to be the Messiah. And they begin to give him praise and they spread out branches, not just palm branches, but branches of all kinds. Spread them on the road and wave them. They even put their clothes, their outer garments on the road for the donkey to walk on. It was an amazing day. People are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Which is a passage of scripture from the 118th Psalm. During the Passover season, at that time, Israel culture would sing Psalm 113, 113 through the 118th Psalm. Psalm. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. Going up to Jerusalem, they would sing these Psalms of Praise. And this particular passage, we're going to look at it in a little more in depth in a few minutes. It's an amazing picture of who Jesus is as our Messiah. And of course, people begin to ask who he is, and it becomes known he's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. He then goes into the temple. This is the second time he did this, and cleaned it out. Ran out all the money changers. There were people in there changing. It wasn't appropriate to spend your money in the temple because it was pagan money in the Roman Empire or money from some other country. You had to use temple money. So there was an exchange rate. So they, they were making money. And, of course, you couldn't travel with animals very far. So they would sell animals for sacrifice. Both weren't as inappropriate as it was where it was happening. It wasn't just that it was happening in the house of God. It was happening in the place for foreigners. There was limited space for foreigners to go and worship and observe the people of God who were called to be a light to the world because of all that they had going on. Now, some people have debated whether or not it's right to sell things in the church in light of this story. Is it right to have a banquet for youth and all that? The purpose of my sermon isn't to defend that. I think the point is there needs to be room in the kingdom of God for unbelievers. If a church is so busy with programs, they may not sell a thing, but they're so busy with their own cliques, their own little things they got going on, and there's no room for a foreigner, an unbeliever, to come in and observe Christianity and feel the love of Christ coming from us, something's wrong. Right? So anyway, he cleaned the temple out and he declares, my house should be called a house of prayer, which is another amazing prophecy that he quotes from Isaiah 56. We'll look at that in a minute. He said, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, this is a strong warning to them. He warned them by quoting this prophecy in Matthew 24. He predicts a destruction of this very place. But looking at the prophecy that he quotes, you've made it a den of thieves, is Jeremiah 7, 11 to 14. Just listen. To, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you've done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer, therefore I will go to the house which is called by my name and which you trust, 
and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. What was Shiloh? Shiloh was the original place of worship in Israel. When they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land through the prophet Moses, God gave Moses a revelation as to how to worship God and how to construct a place of worship, and it was called Moses' Tabernacle. It was a portable thing. And when they arrived in the Promised Land, they set it up in Shiloh. But because of their sinfulness and their rebellion against God, God removed his hands of protection off of them. Their enemies came in and destroyed the thing. And it wasn't until the days of Solomon that the temple was built. And now this temple, which has already been destroyed earlier, this is a rebuilt temple. In Matthew 24, Jesus said this thing's going to be leveled. And in 70 A.D., Roman soldiers led by a guy named Titus came in and leveled the place. And to this day, it's just a memory. In fact, in that place are two mosques, the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque of Omar. No temple of the living God. So Christ is warning them. And when you read Jeremiah 7, you can see he's talking to them, and yet they're not going to hear him, so destruction is going to come just like came to Shiloh. God is so awesome, he gives us warnings. And so here is a warning alluded to right in his entrance into the city. Then people needing healing come to him. People that were not allowed in the temple come in the temple, and he heals them. And then little children begin to give him praise and say, Hosanna to the son of David. And instead of being happy that sick people were being healed, they're upset that little children are being out of order and that they're given a human, they won't accept Christ's deity, they're giving him praise. And they say, do you see what these are saying? Now, in Jewish culture at that time, there was two periods of life, childhood and adulthood. There was no such theory as adolescence. In fact, this country didn't necessarily have that until the last hundred years. At 12, you had your bar mitzvah. Then you were officially, quote, I hate it when people do that. Here I am doing it. (laughs) A man. 12 and a man, right. So these were children under the age of 12, giving the Lord praise. Children loving Jesus is as natural as breathing. They don't have the anger and the bitterness and the prejudices that adults have that block them from perceiving God's love for them. Children will forgive on command. Children have mercy when you tell them to have mercy. Adults, man, you're talking another thing. And if one of us takes up somebody's offense, we may not even be the offended party, but we take up someone else's offense, we're in bad shape. Because who's going to fix that? And so here's children. Proclaiming him. And Jesus says this, he quotes another prophecy from Psalm 8 too, which is also amazing. Have you never heard out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us from your word in such a way that we have a sense of purpose like we've never had before. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, you are a worshiper. Can you tell someone that? You're going to worship something. You may not be a believer, but you're going to worship something. Just that way. What do you love? 
What are you passionate about? That gets pretty close to worship. Have you ever been to a Cowboys game? It's expressed differently through different personalities, but there's some people really extreme and they're rejoicing when the team does well, when the team does bad. Uh, There's a lot of sad teenage girls this last week. When it became apparent, one direction had, a, had one member that wanted to change directions. And they're crying. This outpouring of love and devotion to their favorite boy band was there. I'm not mocking. I'm just saying we're made to worship. Bob Dylan wrote a song, and it's still true. You got to serve somebody. You might like to drink whiskey. You might like to drink milk. You might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. But when it's all said and done, you're going to have to serve somebody. We're made to worship. And so we are worshipers. And as believers, we are definitely worshipers because we are called to walk in that which we were created to do. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. talk about why we worship, not the how-tos, you know, how to raise your hands, how to clap, how to push past your inhibitions and expressing your love for the Lord. Because in reality, if you love God, it's going to show up in some way. Maybe a little prompting, a little coaching could help you be more expressive. But the point is, you love God, it's going to express itself. You could be bowing before Him, kneeling, whispering, being still and knowing that he is God or shouting at the top of your lungs. It's going to show up. Today I want to focus on why we worship. Not our worship. We don't worship worship, but the one we worship. Who? We worship because he is our king and he has arrived. God is so awesome that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son to be our king. He's arrived. And he lived the perfect life and died an unjust death and was buried and arose from the grave and ascended and sent back the Holy Spirit as his presence with us. And we can experience Jesus here and now when we worship. We also worship because he's returning. He came on a donkey. He's coming back on a white horse. Zechariah 9 10, talking about him riding on a donkey. It begins with verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. That is, rejoice, greatly rejoice, children of Zion, or children of the people of God. Shout, children or daughter of Jerusalem, or the place of peace. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly 
and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. So, our king is just. Fairness is a short-lived thing. What's fair for you may not be fair for somebody else. Who knows that's true? But he's just. That's fairness in the long run. And he has salvation. He is salvation. Jesus means God saves or Jehovah saves. He's lowly. He's humble. And he came riding on a donkey. So these children, these adults rejoicing, were fulfilling biblical prophecy that had been written centuries earlier. Is that not amazing? I mean, it can be proven. Jewish culture had this book centuries before Jesus came. And then God says this, and this is about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He, who's this he? The king, shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Who has heard the gospel? That's a good news of peace. We can have peace with God and with one another because Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. If we all had to pay for our sins, we would all be destroyed. The vengeance is mine. I will repay. God took the responsibility for our wrongdoing and made peace with us so that he could rule in our hearts. The increase of his government does not end. He continues to grow us in our levels of submission to him. That's his dominion increasing. They were expecting a Messiah that would come with military power and come riding in on a horse and run the Romans off. But God knew that they would still be just as wicked as they were before if he did that, because that would be affirming their rebellion against him. He had given them military victories before, and it didn't last very many generations. So God sent his son to bring the good news in such a way that it would transform lives, and it continues to do that around the world. You're a worshiper because our king has saved us. Can we say has saved? It's already been done. Already been done. You don't have to climb up some mountain on sharp rocks till your knees bleed to be saved. No, you just call on his name. The hard work has been done. The punishment has been paid. And he's still saving today. He's still making available his finished work on the cross. Psalm 118 begins in verse 20 with this passage that they're going to quote. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 25, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. All right. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. When you translate the Hebrew into English, this is what it says. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. When you translate the Greek into English from the New Testament, they're saying Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest. Hosanna means save now. Save now. So the word Hosanna is a prayer that when it's answered becomes praise. Just like the name of Jesus. You need salvation. You need help. You're about to have a car wreck. Jesus is a prayer, right? And yet it becomes a praise. Jesus, 
Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about your name. So it is with the word Hosanna. It means save now, I pray, O Lord. And what does salvation mean? It means prosperity. Now, don't start thinking dollar sign. It means wholeness in every area of life. Hosanna. So they're quoting this. They sing this song as a prayer during Passover. And here they are proclaiming it over Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So Christ was a fulfillment of this beautiful prophecy. You're a worshiper because our king has a big house. A big, big house with lots and lots of big, big table. And our king is inviting us all. When Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer, he was quoting from Isaiah 56. Verse 3 says, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying... The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. This is the context. We're going to look at verse 7 in a minute. This is the context for the promise of verse 7, which is being a house of prayer for all nations. Christ was upset that the place for these people to go, the court of the Gentiles, was a place where foreigners or Gentiles, non-Jews, could go and observe the people of God in their worship. He said, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. You know, I'm never going to have kids. I'm just all by myself. Don't let that happen. Verse 7, you can read the context, and it all flows. It's the same people he's talking to in verse 7. Even them, who's the them? The son of the foreigner and the eunuch. I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Is that not awesome? But he goes on. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house should be called a house of prayer. Isn't that awesome? For all nations. Any U.S. citizens in the house? Does anybody know where your kin folks came from? It would take us all day to share all of our roots. We're a house of prayer for all nations. This is what the local church is supposed to be. An expression of God's house through multiple houses as places for all kinds of people. The maimed, the sick, the lame, the poor, the eunuchs, and the sons of the foreigner. We're sons of foreigners, are we not? House of prayer for all nations. So when the Lord was cleansing the temple, he was making a declaration that change is coming. My house is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. And I believe few books later, when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, that it happened there. You can talk to me about it later. Chapter 2 does not say they were in the upper room. There's not room for 3,000 people to become converted in the upper room anyway. So we'll, that's another story. You're a worshiper because our king has healing power. How many have had your lives healed in some way? He's helped you. And our king is worthy. Who knows he's worthy? The word worship means worth 
to express worth. They brought the blind and the lame, came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And, of course, they were esteemed that this was going on and said, Do you hear these things? Children still worship him today. Worship is not just an adult thing. It's a thing for all nations, not just an American thing, not just a Jewish thing. It's for all nations, but also for all generations. Even children can know him. They shall all know me, the prophet said, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And we can all worship him. We had a taste of heaven here Wednesday night. Our youth band, for the first time, let me say our current youth band. Our church is 23 years old. So our current youth band, for the first time, led the adults in the church in worship. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And during that time, Orion wrote a poem in his journal, and I've asked him to share it, words of praise to the Lord. While he's worshiping, this is what he wrote. When the author writes of God, with pen and paper he sinks into thought to describe the indescribable colors, motion, words, and the Bible. Though he will write without fail, he will never illustrate the tale. With words he cannot explain infinity, for mortal mind knows just time's enmity. All the elegance of verb and noun, our best depictions tear God down. Our souls are wrong, our love is flawed, it's no surprise he's left us odd. So do not fear heaven's thunders, don't be troubled by our Lord's wonders. Our broken curse is left behind, he's given us peace of mind. So the author no longer must his pen raise, but his heart be lifted in restful praise. Perhaps one day he'll find what he sought to know when he stops searching and lets God show. Good. He leaves us awed. You're a worshiper because our worship has been ordained. God has ordained or chosen that we worship him. And our worship is victorious. It's a key to victory. Now listen to this. What problems are you facing? Worship is a key for you to overcome discouragement. Psalm 8 is what he quotes from in defending children giving him worship. It begins, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, which means young children, you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, Christ said, you have ordained praise. Now, he's the word of God made flesh. He knew what the Old Testament said. But praise is a key to strength. When we praise the Lord, he restores our joy. Does he not? And the joy of the Lord is our, Nehemiah says. So out of the mouth of children, little children, God has ordained praise or keys to strength. Why? Because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy, the avenger. So Christ's enemies were esteemed. This affected them. They didn't whine about what was happening out on the streets, but when the little kids started praising him, ooh, that was going too far. This man must be stopped. 
when the enemy of your soul, when discouraging thoughts, when peer pressure tries to cause you to not worship, worship him anyway. Confound your discouragement. In World Magazine this week, Mindy Bells writes, I hope to remember the scene along the shores of Tripoli, the men in orange jumpsuits, kneeling as one before their martyrdom, their faces fixed on the unseen. In Iraq and Syria, other Christians have been kidnapped and killed without record. Pause. It's been going on for centuries. Only now is it being filmed and broadcasted as some wonderful thing. In the video from Libra showing the beheadings of 21 Coptic Christians, we see them reciting the Lord's Prayer, praying to the one who had already conquered death. Yah, Rabbi, Yasu. Yah, Rabbi, Yasu. They're worshiping in spite of their enemies, in spite of their impending doom. Mindy Bells goes on. To write, did they spend their captive days praying and singing hymns like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail as they kneeled to their deaths? Could they see the glory of God like Stephen did at his stoning? Unquote. I say, how can we face our problems fearlessly and victoriously? With the weapons of worship. Yah, Rabbi Yasu. Yah, Rabbi Yasu. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. I'm almost done. I just have to pray right now. Lord, I pray that these words would sink deep in the hearts of those that are facing unbelievable discouragement. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see that worship is a key to walking in victory in spite of circumstances. It's not an escape so much as it is facing our enemies head on. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to declare the reality of Jesus in conclusion today. In Wednesday's paper, you can find this poem. We need the real Jesus. No one needs a dumbed-down, God-spelled clown, mamby-pamby Jesus. We need the real deal, our faith shield, who bruised his heel while crushing Satan's head. We don't need a homogenized, pasteurized, sanitized baby Jesus. We need the genuine one, the only son of God and son of man. We don't need a politically corrected, philosophically dissected, culturally corrupted Christ. We need the soul-saving, soul-way to the Father's mighty hand. We don't need a dispensated, regulated, abrogated Savior. We need the Messiah who gave his life as our example yielded up his rights. We don't need him traditionally diluted, religiously convoluted, or his perfection substituted. We need the eternal solution, our sin's absolution, slavery's abolition, Calvary's full fruition, bringing us to full contrition, transforming our hearts and minds' conditions. 
You need the real Jesus. You need the real Lord Jesus. Not Jesus, the baseball player, but Jesus Christo, your hope-giving Savior. You need the real Jesus of the Bible, owned by no one, available to everyone, given freely to anyone, meaning that you're the one. Not an icon or a statue in a park or on a wall, nor a bracelet or a charm necklace can restore you from your fall. You need salvation's manifesto, the Savior manifested, God's Word made flesh, new life made fresh, freely given up for all, who for help upon Him call. You don't need any more fictions, novelistic apparitions, nor man-made contradictions for some idolaters' ambitions. You need the real Jesus, loving sinners, hating sin, creating change deep within, sanctifying, purifying, justifying you in Him. This is good news of one who blesses, rescuing from the fallen masses, pulling us out of evil messes, dispelling sin's dark morasses. You need the real Jesus, New Jerusalem city light, shining forth the bread of life, the manna come from heaven, feeding you and freeing you from all ungodly leaven. I need the real Jesus. I really need the real Jesus. Unmuted, unashamed, untarnished, unmaimed, unharnessed, untamed. Famous name above all names. The only true master. The greatest chief pastor. The chiefest great teacher. The eternal truth preacher. I'm talking about the real Lord Jesus. Who was and is and is who was for transgressions wounded, my iniquities bruised, for rebellion punished, my tarnishes tarnished, for griefs grieved, my weakness weak, for shame shamed, my blame blamed, for stains stained, for my sins was slain. He was marginalized, ostracized, criticized, and crucified, suffering much because of lies, redeeming wretched ones like I. He arose and conquered death, regaining his eternal breath and glorious resurrection. The hero who is coming back, his promise sure and not slack, as foretold at his ascension. With fire in his eyes and a sword on his thigh, his garments dipped in red, splitting eastern skies, answering all our whys. On a horse most white, giving the devils their dread, with many crowns on his head, fulfilling all that he said, raising up all saints who are dead, the king of kings and everything, the first, the last, and in between, the A to Z and Alpha and Omega, almighty God, he is to me the real Lord Jesus Christ. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you. Just one.